Not since the first Great Awakening has the church been weaker, nor the American population more disconnected from religion. Well, with that cheery introduction, Keller launches into the need for, here it is, renewal. As we've seen in the last couple of sessions, the church is in decline because it's followed the fragmented trends of culture. The division has coalesced around politics. As we saw in the first article, the mainline churches became uh, you know, sort of obsessed with progressive politics. And you saw in the second article, evangelicals rallying around right-wing politics. We've participated in organized division. I like this phrase of Keller, flashpoint political issues. They've stirred up more energy and emotion than worship and outreach. So not to minimize the concern, but it's kind of like it's kind of like that dog in Up, the golden retriever, who, you know, all of a sudden he sees a political issue come up and he says, squirrel, you know, we, we've gotten distracted by all the decoys that draw our energy away from worship and outreach. It's a sign of a need for renewal, a sign that at the center of a lot of spiritual lives is really a vacuum and emptiness. So now that I've gotten your attention, let me tell you where we're going over the next few minutes. In this third article, Keller outlines the need for renewal, the means of renewal, and his approach to renewal. So again, I'm going to give you those headings as we go. So let's get started. All right, so the need for renewal. A church that's looking too much like the unhealthy culture around it is... A fragmented church, that's the need. Churches get fragmented because of a couple of different influences. First, individualism. Individualism is in our DNA. Here's, here's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, a, a culture-shaping quote. He said, do your own thing. <laughs> the American culture is taking him seriously. In other words, here's an image. The guardrails have come down that once kept American public life traveling in the same direction. No-fault divorce is just one example. We have more pressure on companies to stay together today than marriages. At one time, marriage was considered a kind of public trust, a post, an office. The guardrails are down. And the guardrails are down on charity and the common good and volunteerism. Too many of us check a mental box that it's the government's role to care for the poor and solve public problems. So what I'm describing here is a key trend in culture that's been drawing the church into it, individualism. Individualism is not easy to pinpoint like gossip or theft, but it is a corrupt, a corrupting influence. It makes shared commitments far more difficult because we're not expecting to have shared commitments because this is the culture we're living in. The loss of guardrails like that has made it much easier for people to adopt their own private morality. In other words, relativism about right and wrong. Americans have always pushed ideas as far as they can, but individualism pushes short-term private freedoms way ahead of the common good. With the left pushing this agenda, we cannot assume that the answer is just to push back defensively from the right to maintain order. 
in order to draw a, the widest group of people in to the ends of the earth, as we're called, we need a different kind of vision. A vision outside the categories of left and right. A vision for renewal. So that's the next step. What is this vision for renewal? Keller's surface the need. The fragmentation that we've gotten drawn into and individualism is just one influence of it. So what's the vision for renewal? Here's where Keller begins to turn from diagnosis to prescription. You know, kind of picture yourself in the doctor's office and you've heard him say, here's the problem. Now, here, I'm going to write you this script and you need to go to the pharmacy and you need to take two and call me in the morning. This is where he starts writing the script. Apart from his closing strategies that we'll hear about in the next podcast, this step is one of the most pivotal parts of these articles. Here's what he does. He reframes, picture that now, reframes how to think about faith in public life. Rather than a culture, uh, a culture war, we need a missionary encounter. Rather than a culture war, we need a missionary encounter with our own culture. In, in his original articles, now I don't want to confuse you here, but in his first, the first version of these articles, Keller talks about the need for revival, which is obviously key. I mean, this is God's church. and We are his. And uh, we cannot manufacture the movement of his spirit. So Keller looks back at the Great Awakenings and the crucial elements of them that came out of them, but also the way that people responded to this movement of the Spirit. They repented. They returned to prayer and the gospel. They hit the reset button in terms of healthy church community and accountability. Revival by the Spirit's power became stewarded in concrete movements like the reformation of the slave, slave trade and child labor. But that was his emphasis in the original version. It, he doesn't move away from that but he adds some important uh, additions uh, about our responsibility before revivals may come. That begins by a change in perspective. Again, reframing. To stop regarding the church, here, here's the reframing. We need to make this shift. To stop regarding the church as a static institution in Christendom. <laughs> that is, to stop presuming upon Western Judeo-Christian momentum of the past. Instead, he reframes it to see the church as a mission in a pluralistic culture. The church needs to learn how to have a missionary encounter with its own culture. He's saying something distinct from the culture wars. We need to recognize that fanning the flame of partisanship through tribal narratives and bitter media commentary is not sustainable. The church needs to operate with a more far-reaching vision than the next election cycle. We need to be in that too, but in a different way, with a more leading and a less reactive posture. I know we all feel the urgency of political activism on the left and on the right, when gender and sexuality and identity and meaning, they're all up for grabs. But Keller warns that the answer is not a defensive pushback pining for an idealized Norman Rockwell period of American history. We must be willing to look at the brutal facts 
that the cultural war approach has been largely a lot of preaching to the choir, stirring up the ire of people who already agree with us. As I said last time, you can win arguments without winning people to the arguments. So we need to learn how to have a missionary encounter with our own culture. That means learning how to navigate pluralism, to have a tone and compelling voice in the mar marketplace that, uh, that can win people over rather than running them over. He's not talking about making peace with relativism, but participating in pluralism. So let's distinguish the two. Think of relativism as a shrug of the shoulders where everyone just says, to each his own. Relativism is basically indifference. And indifference is not too far removed from contempt. But pluralism is different from relativism. Think of it as a level playing field or a seat at the table. When Christians approach the marketplace of ideas with that kind of generosity of spirit, then we might actually win a fair hearing. We also put our weight behind the, an ideal that may continue to give people of faith a seat at the table. Does that make sense? I mean, think about that. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If, if, we, are, if we are just militant in a pluralistic culture, then, you know, as long as we have power, then we have a voice. But if we advocate a, a pluralistic kind of approach to ideas, that everybody gets a voice, then when we're out of power, when, when somebody who is in power that we don't uh, agree with is in power, uh, we may still have a place at the table. At the table, Christians need to learn to critique culture on its own terms, to point out contradictions, not to shame the culture on the basis of beliefs that they don't share. That's number one. Number two, Christians need to know what they're for in a way that lines up with Scripture and not just presume one party is going to get it right. So you might not like Keller's list of examples of of how to lead biblically and not through partisanship because he jumps back and forth across partisan lines, including multi-ethnic communities, pro-life commitments, economic justice for people on the margins, and a movement of sexual ethics that's countercultural to today's attitudes. He's talking about biblical leadership, not partisan compromise. And so in his final section, so that's, well, let me just tell you where we are again. So, you know, we, we surfaced the need, and we talked about a vision for renewal, and now he gets a little bit more practical. He talks about the how, a practical approach to a missionary encounter with our own culture, neither bowing uh, to it or bowing up against it, neither running over people or backing, or, 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 um, <laughs> or backing off uh, and thinking that faith views just need to remain private. No, we need to stay public, and here's how. See, Keller turns to Leslie Newbegin, who, by the way, was a missionary to the most pluralistic country in the world, India. He was there for almost 40 years. He'd grown up in Great Britain, and then his adult life was mostly in India. So he can bring us a, a very helpful perspective on how to reframe 
a missionary encounter with pluralism. First, the American church has not adapted its approach to changes in the culture around us. Not adapted, that is, without, you know, adapting without compromising the gospel. That's what we're talking about here. Relevance without compromise. You have to keep shifting your approach, the how. Our lack of a missionary encounter with the culture has not taught the church how to do cross-cultural mission the way missionaries have done for millennia. So that's the first thing. We haven't adapted. Second, uh, it's time to develop a winning offense rather than being on the defense. For example, to have compassion for a secular culture that has no satisfying answers intellectually or emotionally to life's persistent questions. Where's our compassion for a culture, for a world in need? Questions about origin and design. Questions about suffering and death. Questions about ultimate things. These are examples that, that Keller gives about how to engage, how to engage. Officially, secular culture is all about reason, individualism, and relativism. Unofficially, secular culture has no common narrative to bring people together on common ground for the common good. Finally, Keller points out the weakness of a Christianity that caters to popular culture and stresses a faith of the least common denominator. Neither should we become cynical about common ground as Christians continue to fragment. So he's saying, you know, he, again, he's pointing out these excesses on left and right, not to just become sort of populist and, and worry about our parking lots. On the other hand, not to discount a substantive uh, unity that, that we're capable of. So the local church must lead again in this way. We need a confession, a confessional Christianity, not just slogans. We need clarity about doctrine, not just individual faith experiences. We need strong covenant commitments and not just loose associations. You see, watered-down Christianity aimed at popularizing it to keep the numbers and dominance has created congregations that have little security about their salvation. So they end up relying on their efforts, their works, as part of their own sense of atonement. In this way, we mirror secular culture, doing the very same thing, but on the basis of the cause of the day. That's, what, that's their basis. They're atoning themselves, or popular culture atones itself through its works on, you know, based on the cause of the day. Well, Christian, Christians can end up doing the same thing if we don't have a strong confessional identity. Here's a sample of Keller's closing remarks in this article as a picture, a vision of a preferred future. He paints a picture of a day when urban neighborhoods experience renaissance because churches have engaged them. Homes are a place of hospitality for non-Christian neighbors. Christians are able to speak about their faith within the flow of everyday conversation, not with some sort of big agenda. Christians are the first to show up after a disaster. Churches are a place of refuge for people in their pain. Now check this one out. Beauty and art, story, and film energize people because they're created with a great sense of care and wisdom and depth. Church becomes outward in their compassion because secular culture lacks the ability to bring people together substantively. 
Christians become known for their use of power in business and church and public life. That is just. Well, that's a lot. So that's all for now. In the next and final podcast, we will outline and unpack eight core strategies for the church to have a missional encounter with the culture. This is Tim Filston. Thanks for listening.